Howdy. Joining me today is my longtime friend, Rebecca Hubbard. She's a food blogger based in Portland, Oregon. I highly recommend you check out her site and follow her on all the socials. It's PDX Food Love. She is also the person who convinced me to start podcasting in the first place. So if you're a regular listener to Track Nerds or my other podcast, History and Film, you have Rebecca to thank. Or blame. Okay, let's get to it. So, I can't believe I have not had you on sooner because you are the reason that I started podcasting in the first place. I know, and I um, can't believe it either because I listen all the time, so I'm happy to be here, and how dare you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I just feel like uh, coordinating is just kind of just kind of tricky with your with your busy schedule and everything, and with the two new young ones, of course. Two little dudes running around, yeah, they take up a little bit of time. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, first, I did want to start about kind of what you do and specifically with your blog and how that's going and maybe focus on that first and maybe just kind of we can talk briefly about, you know, the day job. Well, the the blog has been pretty quiet for the past 11 months <laughs> <laughs> because of two small reasons. So uh, in January, late January of 2019, I had twins. They are amazing and awesome. <laughs> And I'm also still breastfeeding them. So that takes up a tremendous amount of my day. So I pump rather than like directly nursing nowadays. But it still is like when you add it up, it's a couple of hours out of every single day. Oh, wow. So I haven't had a lot of time to do any food styling and photography at my house. (laughs) But I started a blog in about actually almost 10 years old. I think I started it in 2011. Oh, dang. Yeah. And at the time, there were not a lot of well-known... I mean, that was really when a lot of blogs were starting. Some of the most famous ones were already up and kicking. But like when you think about like local blog, the local blog scene, especially in Portland, a lot of people started around the same time or within a few years before then. So not definitely wasn't like the first or anything like that. But um, at this point, it's been around for a while. And that was kind of a time... I would say right at the beginning of when like being an influencer was starting to exist at all. Oh, right. It wasn't a thing before that. Yeah. No, it wasn't. I mean, it was, it's always been a thing. Like, if well, you, true. It has, it has been named in the way it is now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for a long time, celebrities have endorsed stuff. Right. And, but for bloggers and like independent people, that was barely even a thing at the time. And probably like a six months or a year in, I think I got my first invitation to like come eat somewhere for free and write about it. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, from then on, that really grew. And I worked on my photography skills and started to focus a little bit on cocktails and more vegetarian style food, which I've, I still uh, enjoy making cocktails. And I definitely enjoy like a mostly vegetarian diet, but that was completely impossible when I was pregnant with twins and feeding twins. Right. Just not enough calories, not enough protein, especially if you also like fitness. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's like a whole, that could be an entire hour long conversation. That's true. Of like That's true. Eating to support both of my two core things of my life, my fitness <laughs> routine and my babies. Anyway, so I have worked on the blog for years. I basically consider it a really long-term personal art project. It also has been a business in the past. 
although I haven't taken on any business aspects of it over the past year um, while the okay. kids have been so small. But I wouldn't say that I have like done with that forever. More I, what I've been telling people that contact me is that I'm on maternity leave, which is basically true. Just can't do it all. And so, so I'm pausing on that, still posting occasionally and definitely still keeping up on the scene. But I don't go to as many, nearly as many events as I used to. Um, but that also, the whole dynamic has changed. Right. Like the world of social media has changed so much. And Facebook and Instagram have both changed to basically allow fewer people to see your content. Oh, right. With the algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it used to be basically if people are responding well to your content, then more people would see it. And uh, now it's just kind of a crapshoot. It's really hard to know. Like, I don't think anyone's hacked it right now. Probably two years ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, Instagram stopped organic follower growth, like basically almost completely for people of a certain size. And then about a year ago, they really stopped um, organic engagement. So it's a tough environment. And I think a lot of people who are like mid-sized influencers and micro-influencers are basically questioning if it's worth their time anymore, since it's not really a fair playing field. So as we hit and enter the 2020s here, what potential new avenues do you see for expanding? I mean, not necessarily your, your blog specifically, because again, blogs themselves are kind of shifting. But like, what, where do you see maybe taking your quote unquote brand uh, this next decade here? It's a great question. I think that a lot of people are eager for a new platform besides Instagram because yeah. of the way it's changed. You know, I think that Kind of the bummer about it is that, you know, you were making good content and the people who were following you did so on purpose. And now, you know, if you post something, about 5% of your followers see it. Right. Like the people that have already opted in intentionally following you and 5%, <laughs> unless you promote it, of course. And so for people who are just like out there making content, that's really rough. And and then, but the habit of people is that they are not doing a lot of reading on websites right now. I actually think podcasting is a really solid frontier right now, but I do not have time to podcast. I, as you are well aware, it takes a lot of time <laughs> and crafting and logistics. And, um, and it's saturated too, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I mean, I also think that people are getting a little social media, I think, People really used to care what other people are up to more than they do now. <laughs> right. And, it, well, it's uh, overkill. It's just, it's been too much uh, and it's, it's just kind of, over, we're overloaded. It's yeah. I mean, and you know, TikTok is great, but TikTok is just Vine. Like, right. it's very popular, but it's not new. So I don't really know that there's a lot of like trends we can draw from that. Twitter bought Vine and killed it and prematurely and whatever, that's their prerogative because they bought it. But like Vine was nowhere near dead when it was killed. Hmm. So uh, people like it, but I don't know that TikTok is like the next great platform. It's very fun. People love it. Great. But like, I don't know if that's going to be the place where like cultural things are happening. Right. I just don't see it as being that platform where you're going to gravitate to for, you know, food blogging or, you know, giving people recipes or whatever. Exactly. Uh, but YouTube is a big future platform too. Like and, I've, and I've suggested that one to you before, but again, it's just yeah. a time thing. It's just it's a time a, thing. Literally a time thing. I have, I have the expertise. I have the equipment. Just don't have the time. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and that's where Gen Z lives. So, I mean, the audience is already there. 
Right. That's uh, my day job, which we have mentioned, but it's working at a, an agency that does marketing for food brands. That's where, you know, when people talk about marketing to Gen Z, YouTube is where you need to go. Full stop. So, but that's another, I don't know, like, I don't know if that will translate into adulthood because who has time to just watch that much videos in a day? I don't. Like, I know that video is a really powerful platform, but personally, I have time for a maximum of one TV episode per day right now. Right. And so, like, I don't know. I'm just not going to, if I'm choosing, and this is me, I guess, being a millennial and not a Gen Z, I, if I'm choosing between watching an episode of, like, a professionally written, professionally shot highly stylized and excellent golden age of television TV episode and someone doing an unboxing video and literally never going to choose the unboxing video. Well, now at the the same time, I mean, as far as how I use YouTube as, you know, borderline Gen X millennial is I I use it as a search engine. So again, if I, if I'm looking for, Oh man, I'd love to make some breakfast burritos. I might not even search it in Google. I might search it in YouTube. I watch a video on it, which I think that would be the audience that is waiting for you. Yeah. Yep. Totally. It is for those who are basically like upper millennial and above, that is the primary use of YouTube. And so that does make it valuable for the clients that I serve in my day job. And theoretically, if I did that for my blog as well, because exactly like people search thousands and thousands of things and often people don't subscribe they just search for what they need and use it like i don't subscribe to a lot of people that i regularly watch i just type it in and go there so right i kind of i recognize them but i don't actually subscribe you're right anyway so i do think anybody who's trying to make a foothold in content right now is probably wise to be focusing on youtube Okay, and it, and it seems to be the one that's going to have the staying power. I think Twitter's going to have staying power too, but it just kind of has a different purpose versus, like you said, TikTok. I don't think this necessarily is going to stay around. Facebook at this point is basically just used as the thing you use to log into other apps and <laughs> is kind of just for old, old, older people. But YouTube just kind of seems to be this fairly consistent platform. As long as it doesn't completely alienate its content providers, it's going to be around for a long, long time, I think. Which is also a thing because Correct. they are yeah. constantly like tightening that up. And like, I don't know, YouTube content creators, like some of the biggest ones who I, I'm just, I don't know, I'm out of, that's their, I'm not their audience. And I truly don't understand the value of some of them who are very prominent. But um, <laughs> PewDiePie. They fuck up. Yes. In so many ways. Like they massively fuck up. And then they make these like tearful apology videos. I'm like, that would never fly for like a real brand. So right. like, <laughs> I don't know. So, but also YouTube, like I said, they, they change the rules in terms of how those people get paid as well. So right. I don't know. It's a little bit of the wild west, but I do agree that it, I mean, it, it's got staying power because it has, it's like 15 years old, something like that. It's already been around for so long. And Twitter is the same. I actually love Twitter. I spend most of my time on Twitter when it comes to like personal social mediaing. Even though there's a lot of crap on there, I super enjoy Twitter. So, <laughs> um, and uh, let's go ahead and shift gears here. And so, right before we got on this conversation, you mentioned specifically that you had a lot to say about travel, and you were very, very excited. <laughs> so, and I don't think you had a specific trip in mind. So, you just kind of wanted to talk about kind of the trips you take in general, either for work or just kind of whenever you guys can get away. Pre twins? <laughs> no, not pre twins. Oh. Uh, They've been on three plane trips so far. And Are the you next serious? One okay. Is, the next one is Friday. Next Friday. Um, oh, no. Sorry. Next Thursday. 
No, and what I truly love about travel is kind of the logistics aspect. I actually work more in operations now for the business that I work for. And um, so I work in operations from a business perspective, but it's also what I geek out about when I'm traveling because I do it so often and I'm so interested in optimizing my experience. Uh, So I think that the the year before I had kids, I think I flew, I don't know, I I think 15 to 20 round trips. Oh, wow. And I stopped flying mid-November because I was extremely pregnant. And I was literally, so when I was at the peak, right before I had the kids, I was 55 pounds heavier. So increasing my body weight by like 35%. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that was insane. And it was hard to like literally move around the world. Um, And that they don't have you fly late because also theoretically you could go into labor, which, you know, that's a questionable practice for many reasons. The biggest of which is that going into labor and having babies is so not like what it is on, like how it's depicted on screen. Oh, right. It's so not immediate. It takes hours, like literally hours. Right. So you could finish your four hour flight and be fine. Yeah. Yes. And at the very, I mean, like you don't want to have an emergency landing, but it really depends. And like at the end, you see your doctor on a really frequent basis and they know exactly how ready your body is for labor. Right. So it's, it's an extremely conservative practice. Like it's basically allowing for the off chance that you unbeknownst to you and your doctor are already like several hours into the labor process (laughs) and earlier than would be biologically optimized. (laughs) Is this, is it just an airline policy? Is it what doctors recommend? Is it, it's not a law or anything, right? It's not a law. It is what doctors recommend, but that's true of literally everything about pregnancy is that all of the guidelines, like conservative does not even begin to describe them. They are ultra, ultra, ultra conservative. Okay. Like another example is like the consumption of alcohol during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Like the guidelines for alcohol during breastfeeding that are like given by the, like the organizations that are the trusted organizations do not line up with what the data says about what would actually put alcohol into your breast milk at a, at a level that would be a concern. They are way pulled back and it's frustrating. Anyway. Gotcha. (laughs) So Travel. It's a big part of my life. Like I said, the twins have already been on three trips. We went to Kansas for a funeral. Unfortunately, we have had some sad things. But so my grandma in Abilene died. Oh, okay. This summer. Yep. So we flew and went to Abilene for her funeral. And then um, we went to a family reunion of Dave's in August in Wisconsin. And then we went to Dave's sister's wedding in Chicago in uh, October. And then we're going to San Francisco on Thursday. Um, see some friends. And so they've already flown quite a bit. (laughs) Wow. I think that there have been two interesting things about that. One is that typically they're quite good on flights. There have been times when they've been upset, but they have been reasons. So like one example was one time we were on this flight and the AC was messed up. And so the part the place where we were sitting was like 80 degrees Mm. and the back of the plane was like 60 degrees. And they were pissed because they weren't comfortable. Like, right. can't blame them. And they only have one way of expressing themselves, which is crying. So anyway. And then the other thing is, like, whether or not other people are assholes about having kids on planes. They super haven't been. Everyone has always been really nice. Okay. And 
yeah, they've just been like, oh, wow, you're doing a great job. Your kids are doing a great job. Thanks. You know, good job. And uh, I don't know, even when they've been fussy, uh, people have typically been really nice as opposed to being like, why did you bring your kids on this plane? I was afraid that we were going to have to deal with a lot of assholes. And I was like mentally preparing myself with how to, for how to deal with that. Yeah, then I didn't have to. So that was nice. Uh, excellent. And do the boys like look out the window and stuff and kind of are perfectly aware of what's going on or? Um, some, yeah. Uh, they usually, they often will take a nap. They like to play with something. Uh, so they are not actually supposed to have screen time until they're two. Right. So that's not a thing yet. And often it will line up with a nap and they, they're busy little dudes. They don't do a lot of sitting in our lap right now. And so, um, when they are sitting in our lap and they have a bottle and it's kind of warm and snuggly, um, some, they will take a nap often. But we'll see. Every every month is different. That's one of the interesting things about right now is like their brain is changing so fast. We just don't know what to expect from one day to the next. Uh. So that's been that's been good. Um, I think the biggest challenge has just been like the logistics of pumping and feeding them and changing the diapers. And like, how do you do that when you have an eight hour travel day? So that's been crazy. <laughs> yeah. Improvising doesn't sound like something you are able to do nowadays then. Everything has to be planned, I would think. Pretty much. Um, I think that now it's about to get a lot easier. Okay. So um, one year is when they, which is January 28th for them, is when they can start drinking cow milk as like on a regular basis. And you can buy that anywhere. <laughs> And now that they can eat solids, that's another thing that like, okay. you know, if for some reason, like if for some reason we got on our plane and we had literally no food for them, we could buy them some French fries Gotcha. and they're like eat solid enough foods that we could buy. There's a pretty decent number of things that we could get at an airport if we really needed to like bananas. Everywhere has bananas. And so we could feed them if we had like a major delay or something. And I am planning on stopping breastfeeding them around their birthday too okay so my life is about to get a lot easier gotcha. <laughs> and then um so we're through the wilderness of foods being the primary tough spot but they're getting so much smarter every day that we're about to entertain them a lot more and this thursday i think will be an interesting road test because the last time we flew they did crawl some and now they crawl all the time fast and if they're not crawling they're standing up and cruising on like a table or whatever so I'm glad it's a short flight because I think they'll be able to sit <laughs> for 90 minutes, but we'll see. The flip side of them being maybe easier to feed is they're about to become a lot more mobile. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they're already quite mobile and they're already like, just as that call was an example of their the amount of head bonks has increased <laughs> like a thousand percent because they're trying stuff right. and they don't understand danger and they... You know, if they see a dad go down the stairs, they're like a beeline to follow him down the stairs. And they don't know how to go down the stairs. They know how to go up the stairs. We wouldn't let them do it alone, but they don't understand danger at all. So anyway. <laughs> they're still learning how gravity works. I I, 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 th I find it fascinating, too. They talk about the idea of like, you know, like a kid in the high chair, you know, throwing the spoon on the ground. It's like, yeah, that can get frustrating for the parent. But it's like they're learning physics. Like they are just learning the whole idea mm -hmm. of like, oh, I can grab this thing release it and then it continues on as a projectile like that's them learning that like as, as yeah, frustrated as the cool. parents get it's like they're constantly doing experience experiments with the world and then you can kind of see that reaction on their face so yeah that's gotta gotta be a lot of fun yes i've not been super obnoxious yet but we'll see <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. um but yeah 
Somebody I know, I forget, but they said every baby is a scientist, which I thought was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're constantly testing assumptions and theories and they're just like, what will happen if I do this? I don't know. Let's try it. Right. And then we as adults have to, you know, one, keep them safe and all of that. But also you don't want to kill that curiosity. And I think that's what happens way too often is we at some point we kill that curiosity out of sake of wanting quiet or wanting calm and it's like, yep. no, you want to keep that curiosity going, though, too, and not not stifle that yep. instinct. And also not do things for them. Yes. Yes. They don't learn. Yep. No, you got to figure out when to start, when to allow them to try something and fail. Yes. When to allow them to try something and wait for them to get it. Like, just a great example is when one of the first times that Gabe crawled up the stairs, my mom was here. So she had Teddy and Dave was behind Gabe on the stairs. And I was at the top of the stairs, like encouraging him to climb up. And like two steps from the bottom, he stopped and he started crying and or two steps from the top. And he was almost there. And (laughs) Dave and I just looked at each other and we didn't even say anything. But we knew we were just like, nope, nope, don't help him. And so we just like encouraged him and Dave like patted it on, on the butt and like kind of encouraged him to keep going upwards. And he eventually did. And okay. it was a good moment. Nice, and I was like, nice. Okay, you learned it. Good job. Uh, the one that comes up every year for me as a coach is seventh graders safety pinning their number to their jersey. Mm. They are like asking questions on like, what's the best way to do this? Or wait, how exactly? Some of them have never seen a safety pin before. And it's just kind of like, nope. Figure it out. That's my contribution <laughs> to your personal growth right now is here's the pins. Here's the number. You figure it out. <laughs> yep. The risk is like zero. Right. Well, so they poke themselves. <laughs> but no, right. Yeah. I haven't had to take anybody to the hospital with a safety pin injury or anything. Nope. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely just this fall, there was a couple of girls that it, they're like, ouch, and poking themselves in the fingers <laughs> with the safety pins. But yeah. So in addition to that, I travel a lot for business. That's what I was going to ask next. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for pleasure. I mean, like this trip this coming week is to see friends. It's not to see family. It's not to become an event. It's literally just we have a habit of they are great Cyber Monday sales on airfare. And so, you know, like especially up and down the West Coast and um, living in Portland, I subscribe to the theory that like as long as you book yourself one flight to somewhere sunny in January or February, the winter is a little bit easier to make it through. Um, we're actually having a really mild winter. Like it's sunny and fifty today. Nice. So actually, about the same here in Kansas. Ironically, that's what I heard. My parents yeah. told me that. Um, but atypical for us, it's usually just con- consistently gray and drizzly. And this winter has been very mild, which I am grateful for because I don't want to walk around on any slick stuff right. with babies. So every Cyber Monday, typically we book ourselves a flight. So we didn't last year because pregnancy, but the year before that, the same friends that we're seeing next week, and we booked a flight to San Diego and went for a long weekend where we didn't do much. We stayed in Airbnb. We went to um, Balboa Park and had a great time. We went up to La Jolla and walked the beach and drank a lot of beer in the sunshine, and it was great. See the sea lions and everything? Yes. Yep. They were out, and they're so profoundly lazy. I love them. <laughs> but it was pupping season, so like thinking back, oh, yeah. like if I was near a beach when I was very pregnant, I would do the same thing. I would sit there and not move on the beach. <laughs> but anyway, uh, for work, I travel about once a month-ish, and it is all kinds of different stuff. It's Sometimes it's client meetings. Sometimes it's conferences that I'm going to to learn. Sometimes it's shows. Trade shows are very big in our industry. They just... And this is the season for them. There's 
one in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. So I might actually be going to San Francisco twice this this month. And then there's one in LA every year in March, well, Anaheim. So we typically go to that one. That's one of the really big ones. And then, um, you know, we try to see our clients in person. So going to see them, they're all over the country and then new business. So basically we find that when we go see people in person, they are significantly more likely to book. Right. So um, in December, I think the only plane trip I did in December was a, a day trip to Los Angeles, uh, which is something you can do on if you're up and down the coast because it's like two hours, two and a half hours to like LA is probably the furthest away I would go for a day trip and it's two and a half hours on the air. So it's like, it's a long day, but when you have two babies, it's easier than staying overnight and toting like 80 ounces of breast milk with you. (laughs) So yeah, I made it a day trip. But uh, for that reason, I'm usually on a plane at least once a month. So I feel like I've basically perfected it. And then previously I was in the hospitality industry. And so we had, um, hotels in one, two, three, four cities, I think, when I was working there. And then also working on new business, like that was part of the business there too, is we were constantly looking for new places to build a hotel or new people to work with who were redoing a hotel. And so I definitely traveled at least once a month when I was in the hospitality industry. So been a lot of travel. Um, (laughs) How does traveling on a plane with breast milk work with the liquid restrictions? So there is an exception for that. Um, so but how do they prove it that it's... They test it every time. That's what through. I was wondering. Okay. Yep. So um, there is not a specific volume limit. Because they're testing to confirm it's the liquid you say it is. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So uh, basically the policy is that you can travel like that a breast pump is a very specifically permitted object. And breast milk also is. And the ice that you use to keep it cold is also okay. Which is nice, right? Because then you can have you have an ice pack, and I like we can get into this, but I am a big fan of packing your own lunch. If you're not traveling for business, and you're not going to be in Portland to eat your lunch, I always pack my own lunch because airport food is often so crappy. Like the Dallas airport has the worst food ever, and so if I'm connecting in Dallas, I am always sure to pack my own lunch so I okay. don't have to eat there. Um, and also a Pepsi airport, which means that the beverages are not as good. Um, so, and <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I know. Um, but anyway, so you can take, you can keep lunch cold with you, which it's a little harder to get ice through if you don't have a reason. Right. Do they test the ice too? Cause remember in theory, you could freeze anything and make it look like ice. I mean, I don't know. Well, I usually use an ice pack. Oh, okay. And- but that's the thing is like I think it's pretty wishy-washy on whether or not you can bring that and it's pretty discretionary discretionary if it's not breast milk like another example is hummus like hummus feels pretty solid to me but I have had it confiscated because they think it's too much of a a paste interesting so hummus is on the wrong side of the line also butter if it's in a pot is on the wrong side of the line I learned (laughs) I froze it so it was literally solid and they were still like this is butter and we don't feel like you can take this and I was like (laughs) I've also had an acorn squash in, taken out and investigated. Um, I grew it myself, so that's the reason I was taking it with me. Um, I, I grew a squash. I was taking it home to the family in Kansas, and they pulled it out of my bag at security and investigated it. <laughs> it was a squash. I also had one time I packed myself a fruit salad, and it was in an old yogurt container. And so even though you could like shake it and see that it was not liquid or yogurt, 
they had me open it for them so they could investigate my cantaloupe. <laughs> Man, I, you, you're you're definitely walking lines I haven't even thought about before. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you fly so often. But the breast milk part is it's allowed, but the basically you can travel with a reasonable amount. And that gotcha. is discretionary based on whoever is your TSA person. Gotcha. And so that is where, to me, I'm like, eh. Like, the Portland Airport TSA people have actually always been super chill and very nice. And Portland security is also famously efficient. But I have TSA pre, and we can talk about that if you want. But they uh, have always been really great about breast milk. And so you basically, you go in. I just tell them. I'm like, here it is. Here's the breast milk heads up, you're going to need to test this. And they're like, okay. And they put it through the x-ray anyway, and it beeps anyway. And then they just grab it and you have to wait for them to take it. And they test it with a little strip or they have like a little machine thing that like senses it. But I carry, you typically carry the milk around in an Nalgene bottle and the Nalgene bottle interferes with the sensor somehow. So they usually open it and like stick a a strip in there Uh. and test it. But they're supposed to allow you through with it. However, um, what is a reasonable amount with twins? (laughs) Oh, right. It's like, a question mark, right? Because at the height of their, they don't drink as much now, but at the height of their drinking, they were drinking and therefore I was making 60 ounces per day. And so if I was away from the kids, then I would have a crap ton of breast milk on my person. Right. And there's actually a service for that. It's called Milk Stork. My company pays for it as a result of me writing the policy, but um, haven't had to use it yet, but there's a policy called milk sork basically where you tell them you want this service and they send an ice pack, an overnight ice pack to your hotel and you stick your milk in there and they overnight it back to your house. Oh, so your wow. husband or partner okay. can use it. Yep. And so a lot of companies are starting to cover that to allow women to travel while they're breastfeeding. Cause if you only have one baby which only having any baby is a thing. But like, if you're only dealing with one, the volume is significantly less, but it's more common for women to have more of a stash. So theoretically, if you had one baby, your partner could be working from your stash in your fridge for the first day that you're gone. And then they would receive the shipment of the incoming milk and then they would have more for the next day or two. So Uh. So there's actually a whole thing for it, and it's covered. It's actually covered by my current employer and my former employer now that it exists. So, so okay, you mentioned earlier your fitness routine, and again, I don't necessarily want to go for you know an hour and a half or just on that, but let's let's spend 10, 20 minutes on uh, what your fitness routine, both kind of pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy, and post-pregnancy. Okay, yeah. So um, I belong to a gym that is. I mean, it's got a room with you know the treadmills and stuff and the weights and everything. I've always kept up on running fairly casually. Like my, my pace is like, I would say the mid eights on a training run typically. Um, so like keeping, you know, pretty decent training pace. I don't do races too frequently, but I occasionally for fun. And when I do, I don't really like train for them so much, but just make sure I'm in decent shape and then just kind of enjoy it typically. And then, so before pregnancy, I would say pretty intense. I typically bike to work. Up until I went on maternity leave, my office was about eight miles from my house. And so I did bike to work pretty frequently um, a couple times a week. Before that, I was downtown and I rode my bike back and forth to downtown. And that was a lot closer and faster. And then um, now my office moved to two miles from my house. So basically, I just have to roll down the hill in the morning. (laughs) But then I have to haul ass up the hill when going home. (laughs) So I bike to work. I have biked to work for a long time. 
And a big reason for that is traffic. But also, you know, it's my cardio. Like I don't see a lot of, I don't see the need to also run if I've gotten Mm. that much biking in. Like if I've been riding my bike for literally hours during the week, then I will probably focus on strength training rather than running. Probably a year before the kids were born or two years, I started focusing more on strength training in the stuff that I was doing at the gym. And the reason, one of the reasons I belong to the gym I belong to is because the classes are so good for strength training. There's a really great TRX class. There's a couple of great um, HIIT classes. And then there's also a great, it's basically like yoga sculpt where it's kind of like yoga slash HIIT. Hmm. Like you do some yoga, but there's a lot of push-ups and burpees and light weights and stuff. And it's exhausting. Like it's the biggest ass kicking I get all week. (laughs) So I was going to class probably three times a week before pregnancy and during the first half of pregnancy. So the other nice thing about strength training is that you can cater it to what your current abilities are. So, um, there was a point at which everything became too heavy and bouncy to run. <laughs> and yoga, I could always kind of do, but it got a lot more difficult because there, you know, you just couldn't twist and you couldn't get upside down and you couldn't really you can't there you're also not supposed to do stuff like push-ups and planks at a certain mm. point because there's a thing called diastasis recti, which is where your abs literally split open because of the weight. And if it happened to me, and it's still kind of there, like it's mostly healed, but like after a certain point, you're supposed to do push-ups and planks on an incline instead of straight down because of the risk of diastasis. But it's extremely common for people with twins. And it definitely happened to me. So basically you can feel it, right? Like, so if you're on your back and then you do like a crunch up, you can feel like your six pack abs split open and you can stick your fingers in between them and feel that they're on either side. It's wild. And like your transverse abdominus is below that, right? So it's like the thing that is like the key is you have to exercise your transverse abdominals to get your six pack abs to mend back together. And the way that I did that and that everyone should do that, in my opinion, is going to a physical therapist. Like I I think everyone who's been pregnant should just go to physical therapy. It was so helpful. Mm. It changed so much right away because so after I gave birth, I start, you know, I went on a couple of runs. Everything was very bouncy still. I was still like right after birth, I still was, you know, I think that I lost like 25 pounds when the kids were born and the placentas left and the fluid started leaving. Um, but I still had a lot of weight and in a different shape. And so running, like I had to wear like just layers to keep myself like bundled up such that I could run without with, without being really uncomfortable. And um, that went away. And so like now, not that the number on the scale does not matter, but like the kids have eaten so much that now the I'm back at, I'm below my typical weight, but I am not, still not, still not distributed typically. Mm. And so still kind of weird, still have to bundle up a little bit, but it's way easier to run now. And I had a lot of pain from like lifting babies and like your abs being literally broken And so like my therapist had me doing upper back exercises because, you know, every muscle is a a push and pull system, right? Like it's got a partner muscle. So you can't only exercise your abs. You have to also do your back. Right. So you can stand up straight enough that your abs can actually do what they're supposed to do. So that was a huge light bulb moment for me. And I'm really glad that we figured that out and that, and that really helped. And so once I did that, I was way more able to start doing those hit classes again, just kind of slowly building back up. I have been running occasionally, but I've been biking to work 
pretty much all the time since um, I went back. So not every single day, but yes, in the rain. And I don't know. It's nice. Especially with being so much closer now. Yeah, that's that's nice. Yeah. Anyway, so I think that like my biggest focus now is like I when I gave birth and I've seen this reflected in other friends who are into like fitness, um, you do lose a lot of strength. And I'm not sure why that is just like because you have to slow down so much at the end or because of the tremendous physical exertion that delivery is like literally the hardest thing ever. And it's so hard to describe. I've never gone on a run where I was working as hard as I was to like push babies out. <laughs> it okay. was incredibly okay. difficult. So everyone, you like lose the strength. So like I can't do a pull up right now and I could do a pull up before I was pregnant. Huh. And so that's like my big goal now. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, you'll get that back. And uh, and hey, you know what? You know it's gonna be fun too when the when the boys you know go to start exercising and doing those kinds of things themselves and kind of having fun with all that. And they'll get their bikes here in a few years and all that. That's gonna be fun. Yes, and they absolutely. It's all about um, modeling behavior from yes. what was like. They are so interested in the piano right now because they see Dave play it and they're just like, I want to play on this thing that Daddy's playing on. So it's really great, though. I want them to be interested in music and the piano. And so. Right. And that's what, that's, that's what I've just kind of just, you know, what I've observed over the years is if you basically don't do the thing and then try to force your kids to do the thing, despite you not doing it, they're going to not be interested. And the idea that you're forcing them to is just like they're just going to hate it and it's never going to work versus if you just kind of put them in the world where those things exist they will gravitate toward it and want to do it on their own, whether that's music or sports or reading or whatever else. I think you just got to let it happen and put them in that environment versus ramming it down their throat and making it a chore. Yes. Yeah, that's really going to be an interesting, like, I don't know. It's interesting to see how much how much is modeled and how much is not. Because there is stuff that is just like, like they love to eat bread and toast and grilled cheese and Cheerios. And it's like, they do. They love peas and they'll eat green beans right now. And, you know, they will eat vegetables. But if you put down a piece of banana bread or a piece of a Cheerio next to a pea, they will eat the Cheerio first, 10 times out of 10. Really? And we didn't teach them that. Uh, yeah, they just kids are born loving carbs and whatever. It's fine. Like, <laughs> they'll be fine. So let's uh, let's end here. I think it's appropriate for us to talk about Star Wars, given our shared growing up yeah. growing up with it and i know you are a, a huge star wars fangirl and i know we just talked about you had not yet seen rise of skywalker but i i don't think no. that matters we we can we can ignore that and i still want to talk about kind of just the franchise in general and again yeah. we, we, you can get as spoiler as you want to be because again you're a movie ahead and and I'll, I'll make sure i don't talk about uh the most recent film yeah, so I don't necessarily have a specific question to start off with other than, so did, were you kind of like me? Do you just kind of like grew up with it and kind of don't remember a time before Star Wars? No, um, I remember a time before Star Wars. And the reason is because I got it spoiled for me when I was in like fourth grade. Um, <laughs> we just hadn't watched it yet. Okay. I think that we, it was, well, it was when they re-released the original trilogy. Okay, in the late 90s, in yeah. 97, yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know exactly what year that was. <laughs> um, <laughs> Also, I got a Darth Vader debit card yesterday. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so speaking of parenting. <laughs> no, no, I have like, it's a huge thing to decide how to introduce Star Wars to your kids. Oh. If the Star Wars love is different between the two parents, 
you have to have a very important boundaries discussion about it because it literally already happened in my circle of friends that the mom was less of a fan than the dad and she let drop the big secret that the Darth Vader is Luke's father in because they were reading a book about Star Wars and um, you know, with Harry Potter, they read the books before they watched the movies. Right. And so she was reading the book and she figured it's fine to read the book before you watch the movies and crossed over the big reveal. And then the kid didn't see it happen on screen. And it was like a fight <laughs> in the family. So anyway, my solution to that is I think we're going to watch we're going to watch the first two in the same weekend when they're like five. And so they can't go to school and say, I just saw Star Wars and somebody else was oh, like, oh, my God. Right. OK. Right. Because it happened to me, and I care. So sometime in 1997, when I remember specifically, they were advertising on pizza boxes. Right. Because we were like, what's this? I want mom and dad. And they were like, oh, Star Wars, we should watch it. And my mom actually was a huge fan in the 70s, was right when she was in college, I think. Okay. And, and so she was like all for it, you know, and they're like extremely PG. Like, they're great family movies. So we watched the first one and I went to school and was talking about how great it was. And my friend was like, oh, my God, did you know this happens in the next movie? Uh... And, my mom, this. <laughs> and I like I still I still know who it was and everything. Like, I just remember it so clearly. Uh... So it's very important to me. That I don't spoil it for my kids. And I'm looking forward to experiencing it through them because I didn't have the, the experience of the surprise. But yeah. I think that, and I also recently was gifted VHS copies of the non-special edition. Oh, trilogy. those are hard to come by. <laughs> I know. They, I know. They were in a friend's aunt's basement with this massive VHS collection. And we just happened, we were on a road trip with our friends. We stopped to visit the aunt. We, she was talking about her collection and took me downstairs to see it. And I was like, hmm, look what you have here. And she was like, oh, those? You can have them. And I was like, <laughs> I yeah I commandeered a set from my parents' house. Sorry, mom, that's where they went. Um, <laughs> and they have the uh, interviews with George Lucas and Leonard Malton at the beginning of each tape. What? Yes. Oh, that see that's yeah that that's the set to have because it's basically like the last version before the special edition. Well, I say that yeah, I'm I trying to think. I don't. Those actually might be the ones that are remastered, but still have Han shooting first, if I remember right. I think so. Yeah. So yeah, that that's the version to have. I, I like can tell you the like the way that that those segments start. It's like in 1977, George Lucas created Star Wars and changed <laughs> filmmaking forever. Like, yeah, that's the that's the version I'm most familiar with. So yeah, at that point, like a fan was born, and I also have three little brothers, as you know, little, little quote unquote these days, but <laughs> younger, three younger brothers, yes. <laughs> so that at, yeah, and at that point, I was probably what ten or something. So. There was a very long stretch of time when those movies were extremely appealing oh, to somebody. Oh, right. They were just playing on a loop in the house, I'm sure, for years. Yeah. yeah. Huh. yeah. And it's great from a parent's perspective, right? Like, that's a wholesome, like, right. non-weird thing for your kids to be into. Like, it's not parents can enjoy them. Like, so we've been we've all been into it for a long time. So back real quick to the whole knowing Vader is Luke's father thing. You at least have that being spoiled. I don't remember the time Black before Black. I knew uh-huh. that. So the the whole reveal of Vader being Luke's father, that's not a thing in my life. I always knew because, I mean, I, I don't know if I saw 
uh, Empire at the theater, but if I did, I was kind of too young. So basically... I feel like you told me you saw Jedi in the theater. Yeah, though, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw Jedi. I would I would have been like two. So yeah, I probably didn't see Empire in the theater, but like basically I experienced Empire Strikes Back as a three or four year old. And so there, I mean, you don't remember the reveal. I just kind of, you know, I'm kind of found out, but just kind of always knew at the same time because I was so young when I would have found out that I just grew mm. up with the knowledge and never got that great reveal. And yeah, yeah so anyway, yeah, I, I still appreciate it as a storytelling device and, and all that. And, and we can get to all that. But yeah, so I, I, just, I don't have that experience at all. That's so interesting. Yeah, to me, that's like the big thing. Right. Like when you think about introducing it, it's like, oh. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so the, the pre- yeah, prequels came out, uh, first one in 99. So, again, now we experienced th- being experiencing those at different ages because I was in college, but you still would have been probably grade school. I was 13 in 1999. Okay, yeah, so middle, middle school then, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what was your experience with the prequels then? So... I think I saw the first one, Phantom Menace, like three or four times in theaters. Um, because you know what? I was at the age when that movie is actually a decent movie. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Um, like, knowing now, it's like, I think that the Simpsons episode where they make fun of it just, like, perfectly encapsulates a lot of what's wrong with it. Like, Jar Jar being so stupid and the amount of time spent in like the political deliberations or kind of the two key things that that Simpsons episode makes fun of. Right. Trade disputes in a Star Wars movie. What are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like nail on the head like that. Those are, those are the two like key problems. But as a 13 year old, it was still pretty good. So I enjoyed it at the time. And like, and then I think the third one especially is like legitimately good. So I definitely, you know, I think that I saw all of them at midnight and all of them multiple times in the theaters. And then I'm not sure I've watched any of them except for the third one out of the theater. Oh, so you haven't, you haven't seen Phantom Menace basically since 1999? I don't think so. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. But I have watched basically all... Well, the only new one that I haven't watched more than once and out of the theater is Solo. I've seen it, but I only watched Solo once. And then... And I think... That movie, I like. I don't know. I we. I don't want to. I don't want to derail your strategy here. <laughs> I have opinions on all of them, and Solo, I think, was a victim of things. Like it could have been good. It's basically how I feel. Yeah. But it was a victim of things. First of all, it was a victim of it being impossible to compete with thirty-five-year-old Harrison Ford. Yeah, it was interesting because I felt like he was good casting, but it wasn't necessarily the performance we were hoping for, and. At the end of the day, so all of these, I've I've got to the point where, man, you're right. I, I don't know where to begin. So the prequels, I enjoyed all of them in the theater, saw all of them multiple times in yeah. the theater, and I enjoyed the experience. But then the more times that goes by, the more I hate them. And mm-hmm. they all still have elements that I love, but them and then basically all the movies we've gotten since... It, they just suffer from not being as good as they could have been. And I know, hey, that's, I mean, that's just kind of a crappy thing to say and that you're never going to enjoy anything if that's your standard. But I, I feel like in, in an achievable way, I think there was a scenario where I would be way more satisfied and for whatever reason, they didn't go in that direction when in a lot of ways those, those directions were obvious. And like the one obvious one, say from the prequels is, who's the main character in the prequel trilogy? No one. They just kind of yeah. they just kind of run around telling you different stories. For instance, you asked that question about the original trilogy. Well, Luke Skywalker. 
And you asked that question about the third one. It's Ray. So right, and so I think that's why they're maybe they're they're better, even though they have their their own issues and that mm-hmm. that, that I want to address too. And I and I can definitely uh, so editing. So so it, yeah. so it's the lack of a master plan, and it actually ties into what we talk about with Game of Thrones, where the the show kind of falls off after they didn't have the the mm-hmm. books as a guide point. And you and you you rewatch season one of Game of Thrones, or you reread the first book, everything is set up. And then you get to the point where stuff is no longer has been set up. And the idea of not that you have to have everything plotted out. Chekhov's gun. There are like 14 Chekhov's guns on the stage. Exactly. And so Star Wars is basically because of the way everything has come to about now with the Disney purchase and then the whole new trilogy is only, and I told you this before, but it's only telling the story that it's telling based on the ages of the actors who played the characters in the story at the time Disney acquired the property. That's ridiculous. That's bad storytelling. And there's no way you can tell the story you originally intended to, to tell or set up any kind of Chekhov's guns in previous movies if you're just shooting from the hip. And then mm. and then this new trilogy, I mean, Ryan Johnson basically said, too, he's making the second part of a trilogy and was told, yeah, do whatever you want. Here's the characters. Wait, what? That's ridiculous. Uh. And, then, and then so, whereas, say, like a Marvel... And I'm not a huge, huge Marvel fan, but at least they had a continuous plan throughout and somewhat of a vision of here's what we're building to and we're going to pay off these yeah. things at the end. And it's at least a continuous story. And Star That's Wars, true. I just want to hit reset and be like, let's, t- okay, how would we tell this story in an ideal way? from the beginning and let's blow up everything that's not the original trilogy and i'm just kind of it's a great universe and i love the potential it has and it just doesn't live up to it i don't know so i mean i feel like i agree that it's like a really difficult task but i think that disney is like the best people to take care of star wars and so i'm actually kind of glad that that acquisition happened the way it did because they've got the money and they've got the expertise and so and I, and I think that a great example that proves my point, but also yours, is Rogue One, right? Because Rogue One has thing links to the original trilogy, but it is way less dependent on it. And so, and Rogue One, in my opinion, is fucking awesome. Like, it's a really it good movie. One, it is, I have a few issues with it, but it's really good, yes. Sure, and everything's going to have a couple issues, but my opinion is that Rogue One is possibly the second best Star Wars movie. Like... I really, really think that Rogue One is beyond excellent. And so, like, and I think the only movie that it's not better than is Empire. So that's my hot take. <laughs> no, I don't, actually don't disagree on the Disney thing. I, get, I, I have two, two uh, significant issues. And one is, like I said, don't base your storytelling on the ages of the actors of the story you want to tell. And yeah. two is what they decided to keep as canon. So, and again, I think I would probably pull, pull the super harsh thing and would have said nothing but the original three movies are canon. And I know that would have pissed a lot of people off. But I think long term, that was the way to tell a better story, period. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, that aside, I do think they are in a an interesting position. And they just need to stop rushing, which is what they are doing now. They basically said they're going to yeah, take a pause they in the movies. The on that. Like, yeah. So, but again, the lack of foresight is kind of them forced them to kind of now retcon themselves. No, I guess not a retcon because they're basically, basically keeping all this as canon, but they've kind of seen maybe we need to be a little more patient. So they, they, they just weren't patient enough. They bought the property and then it was immediately greenlining a movie with J.J. Abrams. They, they needed to take a deep breath. And hey, have mm-hmm. you watched The Mandalorian yet? No. The Mandalorian's great <laughs> because I... Th- I've heard. Because I think they took... I mean, well, it seems more obvious that they took their time 
and are were a little more delicate with it, and it was ma- I I think the way that was handled was perfect, and I haven't watched the last yeah. episode yet, but I think the way they handled that creative property was a stroke of genius, and if they can do that kind of thing with future series or books or films, that's going to be the right way to take it. So yeah. yeah, so hopefully, yeah, I'm still hopeful for what we could get going forward, but I'm just kind of disen- disillusioned or disenchanted with uh, the Star Wars universe. And I long back to actually. Here's what it, the one little thing it always comes back to with me outside of the original trilogy is they allude to so much of the past within the original trilogy, and then when they had the chance to spell that stuff out, it wasn't as good as what was alluded to. I mean, yeah, no, I mean the the prequel trilogy is just kind of sad ultimately. Like, although the one thing that has highly entertained me about the prequel trilogy in recent years is that there is a great, I think I've shared it with you before, but there is an amazing conspiracy theory on Reddit about the role of Jar Jar. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Dark Jar Jar. I'm familiar. Uh, yeah. That theory, just like, I love like thought experimenting that, like uh, I love that idea so much, <laughs> but I love, I personally conspiracy theories are just something I love. Do you, so, do, do you think that is, that it's true? That the Darth Jar Jar theory is true, that that was George Lucas's original plan was that he was kind of a planted Sith Lord within the first film, and then because of hatred, he changed his mind and chickened out of that plot point. Or do you think that's just a fun theory? I think it's plausible. I think it's highly plausible. That's kind of where I am. I think because the, I think the the setup for of Jar Jar in the first movie, if you're going to go the dark Jar Jar route, it's parallels perfectly. Yoda at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back when Luke the first thinks he's just met this weird little creature who's supposedly going to take him to a Jedi Master. Oh, flip, that creature is the Jedi Master. I think that's possibly what he was doing with Jar Jar. Absolutely. And this guy's there inserted, several... yeah, right. He's inserted himself yeah. into our world and then, oh, flip, he's actually a Sith Lord. And like the Yoda example is one example. The, like, the parentage is another example. Like George Lucas loves a big reveal. He loves a big reveal. Right, like, right. I, I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that is plausible, believable. Like if you look at the, um, if you think about that, what is that? The truthometer or whatever it is online that's usually PolitiFact. Oh yeah. I feel like the arrow is like, it's like <laughs> 75%. Anyway, I do think there's a couple of, thi- a couple of things that I do like about the new. So like if we just put the prequels in a box, compartmentalize them and put them on a shelf and then close the door to the closet and then walk away from the closet. Um, I think there, there are a lot of good things about the, the newest trilogy and rogue one being looped in there. Like the fact that there are more people of color, more female protagonists, more female protagonists with lines and like weapons. (laughs) And so Ray Ray is a, Ray is a great character. Um, yes. And, um, she's a great character and, um, why am I blanking on the name of Felicity um, Jones? I yeah, I don't remember the character in Rogue One either. I don't remember her name. Yeah, um, but she, both of them were great characters, and I do feel like they're doing. I feel like they're hitting the amount of fan service properly. Like they did actually kill Han Solo, and they did actually, you know, like they broke our hearts a couple of times. So I think that that's like another thing that's hard is like when you go and see something like this, and you're like, okay. You burned me in 19, you know, you burned me in the 2000s with these like kind of crap prequel movies. And like, I don't, you know, you're going in to these movies like, okay, what's this going to be? And I feel like they've struck a pretty good balance with like 
fan service of like what people want to see rah rah moments versus actual like plots and like things where it's not just like just kidding we didn't really kill han solo or whatever you know right. what i mean like so often i'm watching my i'm watching my way through star trek right now and i watched all of tng and i'm part like not quite halfway through ds9 and it's so frequent that like somebody is gonna die and then they don't die mm. <laughs> it's so infrequent that they kill off a main character and um you know star wars has like gone for it a couple times at this point and i appreciate that about the franchise True. and maybe not as much as some properties have or most as they could have but right you still you still you still don't you don't assume everyone's safe correct right and with marvel it's like you know exactly what's gonna happen to marvel right yeah, exactly. Like, oh, we killed half of our main characters at the end right. of this movie. I wonder what will happen in the next movie. Several like, of which already are contracted to do another film. Right. Yeah, it's like exactly. Yeah, you yeah, yeah that, that that could have been handled differently where we actually thought they were at risk, I think. But yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time here. Yeah. And uh yeah. Thanks everybody for listening. <laughs>